so just to kind of start the week off or to start the sermon series off, I just thought I'd share with you back in about where it all began. And in January 2008, January 8, 2008 to be exact, we had our first Sunday night gathering in Billy Kimmons' living room. I think there was about 15 or 20 people that first week, um, but that was the, the actual beginning. That was the actual f- first physical expression that we began to, to gather and begin to seek to, to start and plant this church. But truly, the work started well before that. I mean, I could trace the line in my own life back at least another eight years prior to where the Lord really began to deal with me and call me into ministry. I was on the mission field on, on a short-term mission trip, and <clears throat> my boss had told me, if you go, don't come back, you don't have a job. And I was like, <laughs> it's a week-long trip, and you're going to... And, and, and I had done everything I was supposed to do. I had done it all right and was supposed to have the vacation. I had asked off work, scheduled it. Everything was prepared for me to be gone except for him. And he said, if you do it, if you go, don't come back. And I, I thought, what am I going to do? And so I'm in Nicaragua wondering if I have a job when I come back. And the Lord met me in that, dealt with me in that. This is going to be your life. Give it to me. Um, I, I will take care of you. I wish it had been as simple as just believing that and taking the next step, but I wrestled, I struggled, ups and downs, rights and lefts, U-turns, all all kinds of different things happening. But about, about uh, about the fall, or actually the late summer of 2007, I had begun to talk to people about what we had really come to believe the Lord had called us to do, plant the church. And that didn't even start with those conversations because it really started about 2006 where I began to really feel impressed by the Lord to start a church. And I don't have a framework for that. It wasn't like that was a cool thing to do at that point. There wasn't a bunch of books being written about it. There wasn't a bunch of, bunch of uh, people out there doing it. It was really on the, but before that real, real, it was sexy and cool to plant the church kind of culture developed in the church. All of that had, had yet to form. I don't know where it was coming from. I don't know what it was about, but I had people coming up to me. Hey, if you ever start a church, and I'm not talking to people about starting a church at this point. If you ever start a church, I'd like to come. I'm thinking, where is this coming from, Lord? But I had begun to deal with this. And so Amy and I, um, we, we, we started talking to church leadership. We, we, we went in front of the church that we were attending at the time, sometime in 2006. I, I think it was uh, towards the spring of 2006, we stand in front of the church and we say, we are going to answer God's call, whatever he leads us to. I don't know exactly what it is, but it took about a year in that time that the Lord really began to deal with me, began to deal with her, uh, really called us as a family, not just Amy and I, but Cameron and Tristan as well. They were, we were a package deal. Um, But again, it didn't happen just nice and smooth and everything work out and everything perfect. There's lots of turns, lots of ups and downs, lots of, it was kind of a roller coaster ride at times. But even in 2006, that night, standing in front of the church, and I'm telling the church that we're standing in front of, we are going to follow God's call. Whatever he calls us to do, we're going to do it. Um, I remember talking to people afterwards and telling them that night, still having no frame of reference, no understanding, no idea what this meant. I think he's calling us to to start a church. I didn't really even have the language at the time. I didn't even understand what, what it meant. I didn't know that people were calling it plant the church or anything. I just was thinking like, well, you just start a church. How do you do that? I, I had no idea. 
but I was convinced that's what he was calling us to do. But I knew, somewhere in my heart, I knew this is going to be difficult. This isn't going to be easy. We're about to leave. We were at Second Baptist at the time, a large church, lots of well-organized, lots of offerings and, and opportunities for your families to be ministered to and in ministry and all of this stuff happening. And we're about to walk away from that and start this missionary effort. We don't even know who's going with us or if anyone's going with us. We just think we're supposed to do this. And that leads us to begin to have lots of conversations that led to five people sitting in our living room sometime in 2007. Also, I think, and Billy was one of them, he could tell you, none of us really knew what we were getting ourselves into. <laughs> but we had a couple of, uh, a dinner, I had conversations with people, talking with church leadership, and that leads to, to January 8, 2008, us gathering in Billy's living room, having our first gathering where we're singing, uh, learning from the word, gathering around the word, and, and beginning to tell people we are moving to start this church. All, all over the place, like every, twists and turns and ups and downs, right decisions, wrong decisions, mistakes I've made. In fact, I've learned more from the things I've done wrong than the things that we've done right. But one thing has never changed. There's one thing that's been consistent all the way through and that is the heart that I, I have been compelled. I, I, I can't let this go. I can't, I can't get away from it. I've said it in a number of different ways. I've, thought to, I've sought to express it in a number of different ways. But one thing has always been central, the gospel. I have never had any desire to plant the church that's just doing religion or just gathering to, to make somebody feel good about the numbers of people that gather, or to just have more programs and events on calendars and, and, and just has the framework or the, or the external expressions of church. If there's not a gospel message underneath of it, I have, I have no interest in being a part of that work. And, and the reason for that is, is because in that year of 2006, while I'm working through and wrestling with this call to plant the church, the Lord met me in my study in the book of Acts and confirmed, and not just confirmed, but, but conformed me to the reality that the book of Acts is not just about a bunch of people going and doing a work. It's not just about the Holy Spirit working. It is about both of those things. In fact, it's titled in our Bibles, most of you open it up, and it's going to say Acts of the Apostles. Theologians have looked at that and they say, well, really, it's about Acts of the Holy Spirit. And, and both of those are true in their own right. But by themselves, both of them are lacking. Because it's not just about what the Holy Spirit did, because the Holy Spirit did it through the apostles and actually all of God's people. And it's not just about what the apostles did and that God's people did, because they didn't do it without the Holy Spirit. But the thing that bound them together, the thing that moved them, and the thing that they were moving forward at every turn in the book of Acts was the gospel. And you'll see it. You'll see it unfold in front of you. So, so as I'm wrestling with this stuff, I'm reading in the book of Acts. That's, that was my devotional reading in the time. I was, I was basically reading it and rereading it. I had, in years previous, I had read through the Bible every year. I did that for, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years or something like that. I'd done it a number of times. And I'd grown to realize, I, I'm, I'm missing things. I want to know more. And the first book I did it with was First Peter. And I read First Peter for about six months straight, over and over all the way. I would just sit down and read it all the way through, and I'd, next day I'd sit down and read it all the way through, and the next day I'd sit down and read it all the way through. It was, it was crazy. For six months I did that, and every, every time I went to it, I was seeing new connections and seeing new truths. And it's not new in the sense of they didn't exist before, but I'm seeing them afresh. I'm seeing them new. 
And then I, I thought, you know, I'm going to do this again. Instead of going back to, to reading the Bible through in a year, I'm going to do it again. And, I, and for whatever reason, I chose Acts. Now, once I got into it, I realized Acts is a long book. <laughs> it's not as easy to do that, right? It's not, you can't just sit down and read it through. Um, and, and, and so I broke it up into its major breaks. So uh, one through seven is where the gospel goes to Jerusalem. Seven through, I forget what the chapter breakdowns are, but then the gospel goes into Judea, the gospel goes into Samaria, and the gospel goes into the uttermost. And you can follow those breaks and, and that pattern uh, through the book of Acts. And that's what I sought to do. And for about, I don't know, six or eight months, I can't remember, it was quite a span of time, I could not get past Acts 1 through 7. So all of this is happening, coincidentally, right? So I'm reading the book of Acts. I'm wrestling with this call to, to plant the church. And, and I'm praying. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with the Lord. Lord, if this is really what you would have me to do, don't just call me to it. Call Amy to it. So I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with all this stuff. And, and, and I'm praying this stuff. And, and then I'm out preaching in churches all around the area. I was getting calls, not weekly, but several, several times a year. I would get called and I would go to to a little church somewhere around the area. I, there was a time where I was at First Baptist Church of Nixa for several weeks in a row as they were looking for an interim pastor, and I was leading their Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services. I was, I was doing these things. And all of this time, and, and all of these things, I'm reading in the book of Acts. I'm, I'm going around preaching. I started a Bible study. I'm leading a Bible study at my, at my work where I was working at Worldwide at the time. Um, Monday night ministry, nursing home ministry, preaching uh, at, at the nursing home, we would show up, Amy, Cameron, and Tristan and I would show up alongside of a group of people, put on a church service, and I would preach. And, 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 and what began to happen through all of this, as I'm thinking about and considering the Lord's calling me to plant the church, is I found in Springfield a lot of religion and a lacking gospel. There's lots of churches, and, and there's lots of good churches. I don't want to paint the picture that, that there's not good churches in Springfield. Lots of, lots, of, lots of religion, lots of good things happening, but not lots of lives actually being transformed. In fact, I found a lot of people who were so, so hungry for the gospel, so hungry for the community that the gospel brings, so hungry for the things that I'm reading and, and, and seeing expressed in the book of Acts that I couldn't help but either the Holy Spirit's quit working or God's people aren't moving or they're lacking the gospel. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit hasn't ceased working since the day God began working in the beginning. And I'm convinced that God's people are still doing what God's called them to do. But I'm also convinced that when we seek to do it in our own strength and by our own power, flesh will only ever give birth to flesh. We need his message. We need his news. We need his gospel power to bring real transformation in real life, and I'm, I'm confronted with this reality that everywhere I turn, every, every opportunity that's open before me is, is hey, let's start this new program. Let's, 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 let's follow these rules. Let's, let's put these things on our calendars. And, and the Lord convinced me in this season, in this year of me wrestling, of me seeking to follow, of me praying and pleading with him to affirm and confirm the call that he put on our lives, I'm looking around and I, I see a people that are hungry for gospel life and gospel community. And then, I don't know, I, I can't remember how long it lasted, but, but I was faithful in praying that and pursuing that for, I don't know, several months anyway. 
And then, because I'm not perfect, I got tired, I got lazy, I started thinking, well, maybe you just read this wrong. And then a church calls me up and says, it's one of the churches I'd preached at several times, and they called me up and they said, hey, we, we, we're considering calling you as our pastor. Would you come meet with our search committee? And I'm like, oh, wow, oh, okay. Well, so I'm working through that in my mind and my heart. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I'll step in and I'll see where this goes. And, and so we started this process of going. I was preaching there every week and, and we were going. In fact, there was a guy from the nursing home that we were picking up and bringing to this church. And there's, anyway, so we were attending and I had met with the search committee a number of times and, and they, we, were about, we were one step away from their vote and them calling us to plant or, or to pastor that church. A sweet church, love the, just the people, just sweet and dear. Uh, is a small church on the north side of town. We're driving down the road. I can remember we were pulling off of, of 65 onto Sunshine, and Amy says, you know, I'm not really ready to talk about this yet, but in my Bible reading and in my prayer time, I really think the Lord would have us start something new instead of going to something existing. Now, you need to know, the only time I had potentially mentioned that where she could hear it was that night when we stood in front of the church and said, we are going to follow God's call anywhere. And I didn't say it to the whole crowd. I said it to, in a few private conversations. I think he's calling us to plant the church. I had not talked to Amy about that. I didn't want to influence her in that way. I wanted the Lord to call us both to it. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I... <laughs> we got to talk because I've been waiting to hear this. And so all of a sudden, excitement and joy and all this exhilaration just floods up within me. And we go home, we pray, we talk. I call the lady to to let her know we can't come to your church. And one of the hardest conversations, I mean, to quit a job, people are, that's that's one thing that this, this church, they were dear people. And I'll never forget us that night sitting and having that conversation and making that phone call but not doubting in the least that we were going the direction that God had called us to and that we were going to lead a group of people we were going to be part of leading a group of people to be about the gospel because that's what God has always intended his church to be about to live from and to live for because of the gospel and it all starts all the details all the all the actions, all the working was to get us to this place where we wouldn't lean into our own understanding or lean into our own strength and our own efforts, our own wisdom, but to live as a people who are motivated by the gospel. And so that's why if you have been at this church long, you have heard us talk a lot about the gospel. It's on all of our paperwork from the time that a person begins to attend to the time that they join and, and covenant alongside us, they are always, you, you're always hearing about the gospel. Because what God has done, he has done in this world through the gospel. The solution hasn't been, never will be, more religion, more rules to control our lives by, more, more methods, better methods, you know, oh, finally we figured it out, we're going to do the method right, we just need 40 more days of purpose, right? We just need, we just need the, the, the right set of, uh, the right type of music, the right dress, the right, the right programs that, that draw large crowds. We, we need more lights, more smoke, more bull rides, more, sorry. Yeah. I, here's what I appreciate. So, so as Billy prayed this, this morning and he led us through this, this is just how, this is how intrinsic it is to who we are as a church. It's not that 
I, honestly, if, if, if we could figure out a way to do lights and smoke and bull rides to the glory of God, I'm all for that. If the substance is the glory of God and not just the gathering of a crowd. You get it? There's a difference. There's a different way that people do these things when they're motivated by the gospel than simply just stroking egos and, and building six, what, what's appearing to be successful ministries. And just because it's big and flashy doesn't mean there's not gospel success. So we need to be careful. It isn't just more events on our calendar. That is never going to be the solution. If the church is devoid of the gospel, it is nothing more than a social club or civic organization. The church is a gospel community that's being shaped by the gospel truth. It's because we've been given gospel life. And all of this is rooted in the book of Acts. It's seen in the book of Acts. It's spelled out over the rest of the New Testament passages. As you look backward into the scripture, you can see it. But this year, as we start this year, and as we think about being a church for 15 years, we're going to go back to this. So every week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and the surrounding passages for the next three weeks. You can just plan, put your marker, put your Bible marker there, put a piece of paper there, just easy to open up to. Go home and read it. Read the first seven chapters of the book of Acts and see how the gospel has moved. Um, Pay particular attention to those surrounding passages right around 42 through 47. And that's where we're going to be every week because the gospel is God's people moving with gospel news, gospel power by the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that every week. So today we're going to read from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And, 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 um, actually, I'm sorry, Acts 2, verse 36 through 47, just to get some context and see, the, see how the proclamation of the gospel led to the movement and expression of the church growing and becoming more visible in the world. So let's, so let's read, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Let, us, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, receive the or you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added, to their, added that day about 3,000 souls." And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, move on us afresh. Inspire us as we sit here and think about a new year, an anniversary from the last 15 years, and and all the things that are ahead of us in our individual families and our individual lives. I just pray, Father, that you would move on us by your Spirit, that these wouldn't be verses that have just been read over and over and spoken to over and over, but that as we look again at what you're doing by the power of your spirit through the, th- through the message of the gospel in us, you would move us 
towards, towards one another, towards you, towards the world that so desperately needs this message. I pray, God, that this would be, uh, well, a turning point in our lives. That we once again would be oriented around the gospel to live for the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name these things. Amen. Now, I don't want to look, overlook the significance of this passage, that, that there's so much happening in this passage. There, there's a special moment that has just occurred. So, so Jesus, 50 days earlier, Jesus raises from the dead. Then he spends 40 days with his apostles. Ten days previous to, to the events of this passage, he ascends into heaven. He tells them to wait for the power that's going to come on them that he's going to use to send them as witnesses to Judea, Samaria, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And, and, and here it is on Pentecost morning. That's Penta means 50. So on the 50th day after Jesus' resurrection, 10 days after his ascension, the Holy Spirit, the power that they're waiting on, falls on these 120 first believers, first Christians in Jerusalem, falls on them, empowers them, and they begin to proclaim the glory of God. And this is a, a, this is a massively attractional moment for those of us that are just, oh, my, I don't like attraction. Well, the Holy Spirit came in like a rushing wind. It drew so much attention that a crowd gathered outside the house that these people were at so that a crowd, at least 3,000 people big, began to see some miraculous set of events. And the attraction wasn't just a mighty wind. It was these people proclaiming the glory of God. And as people were listening, they were hearing it in their own language. There's about 10 or so listed in the book. If you, if you go and read Acts, there's several, several uh, ethnicities or, or places that these people were from that, that are listed. And they were all hearing it, not just in Greek, not just in Hebrew, but they were hearing it in whatever language they spoke. And then they, like every human is like, would do, well, how in the world is this? Like, what is happening? What's the explanation for this? And so they decide the most plausible one is these people are drunk. Can you believe they're already drinking this early in the day? What kind of people are they? We all know, and, and, and I know that nobody here dealt with this last night, but, but we all know on New Year's Eve when people are drunk, they're not speaking in new languages. They're speaking in something that's incoherent. It's typically, it's typically gibberish, right? So, 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 so that we know that that doesn't make any sense. And Peter knows it doesn't make any sense. And Peter steps out from among these people and he says, they're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is what God's been saying was going to happen. This was coming. And now it's here. And he preaches what we know to be the very first proclamation of the gospel from the time that Jesus resurrected and ascended. He, he preaches a public presentation to a bunch of lost people. It's the first, first Billy Graham crusade without Billy Graham being there, right? It's Peter's crusade. To this massive group of people. And they hear it. And he comes to the conclusion, to the summary of his message. And he says, let all the house of Israel know them. Not just you that are listening to me, but everybody else that belongs to, that say they belong to Israel. Let every one of you know. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they are, the, the scripture says, they are cut to the heart. Because through the proclamation of the gospel, through the preaching of the message, the summation that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus is Lord, 
These people are brought to a place where they see for the first time in their lives the truth. We killed our Messiah. Now, we all know we got sin in our hearts to deal with, right? But imagine coming to the reality, to the realization that you killed the one that was supposed to deliver you. How hopeless would it feel in that moment if the one that was supposed to give you hope was suddenly no longer able to provide it? They are cut to the heart. What do we do? Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, receive forgiveness for your sins. And then he begins to teach them. And I assume his teaching went something like Jesus' teaching for, for those two disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus, where, where he begins to teach, and he uses he walks all the way through the Old Testament with these two people on the road to Emmaus, and he points to the Old Testament and shows how every ounce of it was pointing towards and preparing the world for his coming. So I imagine that's what that first church service looked like, is Peter teaching maybe, maybe for an hour, two hours, three hours, to show how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that he is Lord and Christ, and he is risen and reigning. And as a result of that, 3,000 people believe. 3,000 people join their number. 3,000 people on the significance of this day. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Their lives, as a result of this moment, their lives would never be the same. It wasn't like they were going to accept this teaching, and then go on about life, and, and when they died, it mattered. Their life from this moment forward would never be the same. And we see that play out in verses 42 through 47 as the, as the rhythms of their life, as the devotions of their life, as the people that they surround themselves with. All of these things changed because of the gospel, which brings me to the point that I would long for you to know, long for you to be to. to, to uh, uh, just put inside your heart and let it rest there and do its work there. For the Christian, the gospel literally changes everything. We are who we are because of the gospel. We see that happen in this passage. For the Christian, the gospel literally changes everything. We are who we are because of the gospel. 3,000 people's lives would be radically changed that morning. But it didn't start that morning. It didn't... Oh, the church was birthed in this moment. I think we're short-sighted when we, when we see it that way. Even if, even if we're a dispensational, taking a dispensational view of the Scripture and, and we're looking for church age and all of this thing, this is not where it started. There was 120 people gathering regularly already for 10 days from the time that Jesus ascended to the time that this occurs. There's already 120 believers uh, electing leaders and, and seeking and, and joining in prayer and gathering together, living life devoted to these things. The gospel had already radically transformed the lives of these 120 people, and it didn't start even then. We could follow the lives of, of, of at least 12, uh, at least 11 of them. Judas, we can't really count him. His life changed, but for the worse, right? Like he, it wasn't good. But for the 11, other 11, we could trace much of their life back to the time where, where they first meet Jesus. That Jesus walks up to them like Matthew, the tax collector, get up and follow me. And Matthew leaves his tax booth and follows Jesus. Peter, James, John, and Andrew uh, uh, fishing. Is that the right ones? Peter, James, Peter and Andrew, James, and John. Yeah, yeah. So, so out fishing, and Jesus meets him. Now leave your boats, come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they begin to follow him. 
But the moment of the crucifixion, what happens? They think all is lost. They think everything's over. They go into hiding. Some of them start fishing again. And then Jesus raises from the grave, and they meet the resurrected Lord, and they will never be the same again. The gospel for the Christian literally changes everything. We are who we are because of the gospel. And it doesn't stop at this moment. We follow the, the book of Acts. I told you, this is, this, was, this is so compelling. When you read the book of Acts, looking at the Holy Spirit working, looking at the people being used of the Holy Spirit, being empowered, to motiv- or, or motivated, empowered by the gospel, proclaiming the gospel and seeing it continue to move forward such that it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Just as Jesus said they were going to be witnesses, he, they, they went and did it. And every time, and at every turn, even when it seems like they're, they're, they're being defeated and, and overrun, when they run out of Jerusalem, what do they do? They proclaim the gospel everywhere they go. And what happens? The gospel spreads. We don't even know how it gets to Rome, but I'm, I'm certain, I'm certain it has its roots in that moment when, when Paul is standing and affirming Stephen's death and the gospel leaves Jerusalem and people start spreading out all over the area. And everywhere they go, they're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's Acts 7 and Acts 8. I think it's Acts 8, actually. As it starts to spread out, you can trace how the gospel gets to Rome from that moment. You might not be able to explicitly point it there, but it leaves Jerusalem and begins to spread. And there's a reality. Over and over and over, the whole of the New Testament there's not a New Testament letter that's written that isn't rooted in some way in the gospel, calling people to a life that is radically distinct in this world because of the gospel. There's not a letter of the New Testament that's about obeying a law. It's all about living as a result of the gospel. There's not a letter of the New Testament that's about us fulfilling something or earning our place or doing, uh, uh, doing a work that proves us and presents us as as if we've gained it on our own. Everyone is rooted in the reality that it's been done for us. Even in the moments that we are called to work and to do something, it's not because we're earning our place or following a law. It's because we are working from faith that the gospel is true. All of the New Testament does this. So, so, so this, this, this may be the largest and, and boldest and, and biggest expression of the time, but it is moving, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. It's going to move. It's going to go because, because that's what God's about doing, and he is transforming and changing lives. For the Christian, the gospel literally changes everything. We are who we are because of the gospel, and in the coming two weeks, we're going to talk about we do what we do because of the gospel. But if it's so important, if it's so vital, if it's so necessary that this is the, that this is the thread that ties the whole of the New Testament together, that this is the thread that, 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 that gives life to the church, gives power to the church, and gives, gives purpose to the church, if this is the truth, then we've got to understand what it is, right? We've got to answer the question, what is the gospel? We actually have to answer this question, and, and, and we actually ask it of every person. If you're a member of this church, if you're a covenant member of this church, we've asked you two questions in an interview. What is the gospel? When did you believe the gospel? Because you have to know what you believe, if you believe it, right? 
And if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian, and you have to be a Christian to be a member of the church. So we ask these two questions. And it's interesting because as people come to it, they come with so many different answers, so many different ways to to describe it or define it. Some people give us the story of the gospel. This is what the gospel is, and they give us a story. Some people define it in doctrinal terms like justification by faith and, and, and things like that. But everyone, everyone that has received membership has defined for us or described for us what is the gospel. And it's interesting that as we talk about the gospel, we, we could explain it. We do explain it. We do refer to it in a number of different ways. We could do it in terms of Bible verses, Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, this is a defining ideal, this is an explanation of what it is, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of life. It's, it's a message imbued with power by the Holy Spirit to bring life and salvation, first to the Jew and to the Greek. We can look at verses that that demonstrate the content of the gospel, like 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, right? Full faith, full full leaning into it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. We could look at passages like we've read in Acts and look at Peter's proclamation and go back into chapter 2 where he begins to speak of this historical work that God had been doing throughout history coming to this place where he was going to send his son to die in our place and for our sins and rise again. Talking about the events of the gospel. We could turn to teachers who summarized it with, with uh, summaries of, of New Testament teaching, like Ray Ortland, who's written a little green book called The Gospel. We've used it in an equip class. I would commend it to you. The gospel is not the story of Christ loving a pure bride who loves him. It's the story of his love for a whore who thinks he has nothing to offer and keeps giving herself to others. That's right. so unfortunately, it's true. But fortunately, it's true that he has done this. But for our purposes, just for what we're doing over these next three weeks, for who we are as a church, I would offer you a definition that I've been developing, has been developing my heart, my mind, the understanding of the, and is woven into all of our, all of our, our life as a church. You will hear these things repeatedly if you, if you look. So, so you find, you find uh, well, it's a nice fancy brochure now. It used to be just a bunch of individual pieces of paper, but, but Laura next put us together and made this, made this look a lot better. But inside of all of our documents, you're going to find explanations of and definitions of the gospel, and in some way they all sound like this one. The good news that God is, the gospel is, the good news that God is redeeming and restoring a people to himself through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news that God is redeeming and restoring a people to himself through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would, I would encourage you, you can lay that down next to any proclamation against any explanation of the content of the gospel, against any, any verse that describes what the gospel is, and you will find that this fits in that, I believe. I'm pretty confident. It's a definition that, that, that describes that, that the good news is more than just this word that we use, that it's more than just this, oh, the gospel. 
What is it? What is, it's the good news. It's a message. It's a message of good news. It's, it's a, 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 an expression, something to be proclaimed, something to be told, something to be, to be spoken about, words to be shared. It is good news. And who can't use that? Who doesn't want to hear some good news today? Everywhere we turn, the, the world recognizes there's so much wrong, so much broken. We have good news And the content of that good news is that God is redeeming, forgiving sins, bringing people out of slavery to sin, freeing them to live a life that they couldn't live apart from him, freeing them from the law and from sin, and enabling them to live in a new and and productive and good works life, redeeming them, restoring to himself. And and, and it's not just the idea of forgiveness of sin, but it's restoration, it's making new. It's It's bringing what was dead to be alive. Is bringing what was distant to be close. This is, this is a people that he's working towards and for. This isn't just some abstract ideal, some abstract idea. This is a real work that God's doing in the world on behalf of a real people. And if you have believed the gospel, you are one of those people. God has done these things for how do you accomplish it? Through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. This Jesus, whom you crucified. And, and though we weren't there, and though we weren't screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Though we weren't the ones swinging the hammer to, to nail him to the cross. We were there in our sins. We are as responsible as anyone. It took his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. But God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is the definition. This is, this is what I would encourage you to think of. This is a working definition. Just put this in. Press this down. Test it against the light of the scripture. See if it proves true. And as it does, I would encourage you to continue to, to let it transform your life because it literally changes everything we are who we are because of the gospel. Let's just walk through that a little bit. What does it mean? Because of the gospel, we are, it means we exist. It, it means that we are here, that it's real and true, that there's authentic transformation, that there's real work. Without God's work to redeem and restore people to himself, we wouldn't be individually saved, nor would we be members of his people. You look at this passage in Acts chapter 2 and you see Peter's proclamation of the gospel and then he turns, and, and er, er, the, he doesn't turn, the people turn. They, they're suddenly struck with the reality of what they've done and they repent of their sin and, and they trust in Jesus Christ and they're baptized and, and they join in. They are only now part of the body because they have trusted in the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has the sacrificial death that actually provides forgiveness for sins. This, this movement, this people, this only gathering around the reality that Jesus Christ has done what he's done. Like, and they would believe it. As a, as a result, we are no longer what we used to be. In fact, all across the New Testament, we see these, the, the, these expressions and these hints at the reality that though we're still living in this world, we're no longer of this world. In fact, that was Jesus' prayer at Near the end of his life, John chapter 17, he's the high priestly prayer. He's praying for his people and for those who would believe the gospel message 
that these apostles and that these, that these first believers would go and preach. And he prays in the middle of that. I know they're in the world, but they're not of the world. We are no longer of the world. Paul talks extensively about this across the, the New Testament letters. He just demonstrates that we're no longer sinners, but we're saints. When he writes to the church in Ephesus, he starts the letter, the, the saints who are faithful, those who are holy, those who are set apart and distinct and, and given to God. This who this letter's for. Because of the gospel, Christians are new creations, he teaches us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Because of the gospel, we are free from sin and, and free from the law. Galatians 6 and or Romans 6 and Galatians 3. Look back to this passage that we read this morning, and the 120 are gathered with the 3,000, and their lives would be absolutely different and distinct because they were no longer what they were. They were no longer just Jewish. They were now Jewish people who had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, they were no longer what they used to be. Without the gospel, the church is nothing more than another social organization, another civic group, another, another club to pay dues to. But because of the gospel, because of the gospel, we exist as God's people forgiven of our sin, no longer called by our sin, but named saints in Christ Jesus we are removed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And we do that. That starts, that's, that's true of us in this world right now, in this moment. When you woke up this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, you could celebrate the new year, right? Just because that's what everybody's doing. Happy new year. How happy is it without the gospel? What, what a lie we tell each other when we run around. Happy new year! I, I can't tell you the number of people who I've, I've seen posting on Facebook that I don't, know, I don't know exactly where they stand with the Lord because most of these people are, are distant. You know, we, we don't really, we're not really friends. We like to pretend we are. Posting on Facebook, oh, I'm so, so ready to be done with the, the pain and trouble of 2022 and, and, and grab hold of all the good that's in 2023. I'm betting, apart from the gospel, there's no good thing that happens in 2023 that brings life, brings transformation, brings change. It's not going to happen. There is no happy new year without the gospel. There is no living church without the gospel. We are who we are. We are because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, we are. Because of the gospel, we belong to a new people. It, it, it really becomes obvious in this passage that there's, there's this new people being formed, right? The new people had already begun to be formed, and the, and the, and the people were already, there was already an expression of them, but it becomes really clear when 120 go from 120 to 3,000 and 120. There's a massive change, a massive shift, and it draws a lot of attention. But it really becomes obvious that there's this new people now existing. There, it's almost like this, there's a, a city within the city, a people among the people that become distinct. And you see that as it plays itself out in verses 42 through 47. Those who were baptized, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking bread, prayers. They're in one another's homes. They're experiencing the awe of God. They're, they're living life together. They're seeing needs, and they're meeting one another's needs. The gospel doesn't just unite us to God, although that is absolutely important. It brings us into this new life, but it also unites us alongside God's people. Because of the gospel, we belong to a new 
people and the, bound, the, 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 the binding and the, and the union that's developed as a result of the gospel is so much deeper than the blood that, that DNA carries or the, or the union that DNA carries. Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm going to save you and all of your family. In fact, he tells us purposefully in the book of Acts, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the prince of peace. He is, for those who know the Lord. But he makes a people holy. He unites a holy people to himself, in himself, for himself. And in doing so, he separates them from the world. And he brings that division. That division happens, he says, is going to happen in houses. Between mother and daughter, father and son. The family that you find in the church will be your family forever. Now, praise God if, that, if you get to share that reality with your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers. But if you don't, you're wrestling and fighting against the gospel to maintain that connection and that union over the one that's here. And I know that's hard for people to hear. But over and over and over, we see through the New Testament the gospel brings people to a place where they belong to a new people. Peter would later emphasize it in his first letter to the church, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race. You don't even belong to the race that you used to, the ethnicity you used to. You're a royal priesthood. You have a whole new mission in life, a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Oh, but I was. I belonged to all kinds of people. No, you weren't. It's all a sham. It's all a lie we tend to believe. We're not, we're not united in skin color or nationality. or We're, we're all a bunch of individuals, a, a bunch of suns asking solar systems to revolve around us. Outside of Christ, that's every person in the world. They, they want to belong for their own purposes. They, they want to belong so that they can get something from others. We actually belong to this. We are, we are, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were a bunch of individuals, but now you actually belong. You're actually united. Every other form of unity in this world is a farce. It's a sham. It's a facade. It's a veneer. You peel back that layer or find something that people can disagree about but beside that thing that they're uniting around and suddenly you see the divisions begin to grow. But in Christ, we are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here's the thing. You cannot talk about the gospel very long before you begin to talk about or consider the gospel community that's birthed out of it. So from the very beginning, that's what we've sought to do. Sometimes we've overemphasized the community. Sometimes we've overemphasized unity. Sometimes we've overemphasized the purposes for, for the gatherings and things like that and overemphasized the talk of it. But don't mistake this. Don't miss this point. That there, no gathering, no, no, no getting together, no, no communion, no union, no sharing life together is worth anything if the gospel is not part of it, if it's not the flowing life, if it's not the empowering force if it's not the motive of movement it's just another social club lots of people get together and do noble things lots of people get together and do good things but the gospel brings life and transforms everything and binds us together as a new 
people. Two examples I'd, I'd, I'd like to share with you that, that speak to the fact that this is how tightly this binds us together. So in Acts 29, as we're starting the church, you know, our sending church, it, we're talking to church leadership. We're seeking their wisdom. We're seeking their counsel. We're seeking their approval and their affirmation and their sending. And we're asking for all these things. And they said, yeah, we see it in you. Yeah, go do it. We're not going to help you get it done, but, but go do it. And I was like, I, don't, I mean, I'm wrestling with this because how in the who am I to go plant the church? I mean, I'm jacked. I, you know me. Who, who, would, who would say, go, Seth, go plant the church? And if you knew me 15 years ago, you'd be like, don't do it. But they're like, oh, go do it. We, we see it. Yeah, we see it. And so we're seeking. We're, we're, we're looking for people to look into our lives and affirm this call and, and, and help us understand. And, and, and we enter into the assessment process of Acts 29, and, and we think we're just going, we're not, we're not going to be part of Acts 29. We're just going to go be assessed and let them speak into our lives and let us tell, say some true things to us, looking for, for, for what God would do. And we show up to that, to that boot camp. We've, we've worked through a mountain of paperwork and um, and, and then sat in an interview with people talking about things that you don't normally talk about st- with strangers, people you've just met, you know, we, just dealing, opening up our lives, looking for and answering, uh, looking for God to speak and to lead. And, and what we found in going and walking through this process was brothers and sisters in Christ who were as convicted and convinced that the only solution for our time, for any time, is the gospel. It is a, it is a movement of, of gospel, not just in us, but through us. And then just recently, I was invited out to Colorado. Uh, to, it, it was going to happen at an Acts 29 event, but, but um, one of our sister churches here in Springfield, Redeemer, has some people that had been in Colorado and been part of this church. It's called the Calvary Family of Churches, and they had gone and, and explored and, and listened and learned and, and met this people who, who, when I began to hear about them, all I could think about was us. I, I, I could see the circle diagrams. I mentioned this at our members meeting for those of you that, that were there. I, I remember the circle diagrams of, of a church spreading out into community groups and one of those community groups spreading out and that churches maintain connection and begin to be a network of churches that are closely uh, f- f- just, just a family, a, a close family, not distinct churches so much, not competing, but supporting one another, serving alongside one another, always looking to spread and, and bring and express and, and, and pr- proclaim the gospel in whatever neighborhood they found themselves to be, and always growing out from that, so that that church and this church now growing out, spreading out into other churches, always maintaining connection, figuring out how to share life together, even as, as, as being autonomous churches but never separating and letting the gospel be the thing that binds us together and that motivates us to be very generous with one another. I think that's what you see happening in the book of Acts. The church spreading out for the glory of God and the good of his people and the advancement of the gospel. And I found this people, I was connected to these people. As I began to hear their story and I began to hear their language and I began to see what they're convicted of and convinced of. It was almost like somebody had taken our paperwork and given it to them and they sat down about... 15, 20 years ago and started doing the exact same thing. But we'd never met in our lives. In fact, Bob got to be there with me as we're there. He and I are are talking with these people, meeting with these people, and they start using the same language, worship, service, mission. In fact, there was a point where one day he had had our T-shirt on, you know, the the, the way T-shirt, and it's got those things on the back. And I I looked over at it. I I was like, stand up and show him your T-shirt. But he didn't have it on that day. 
It's like, this is what we're about. Because the gospel has so radically changed us, so, so transformed us, that we can't help but be about the same things now. This is such a beautiful thing. We belong to a new people because of the gospel. We have a new future. Peter tells these people, look at it again, he tells them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, it's so hopeless, it's so empty, it's, it's fruitless, it's futile. Save yourself from this crooked generation. But because of the gospel, we have a whole new future, a new hope. Billy talked about it this morning. As he, as he talked through and, and, and read from 2 Corinthians, I think it was 2 Corinthians 15. As he's reading through, talking about it, but then afterwards it's like, well, hey, nothing wrong with wanting to lose some weight. But are you just losing weight just to lose weight or are you losing weight to the glory of God? Well, we have a whole new future, a whole new hope, a whole new certainty ahead of us. We're saved. Just imagine for a moment what that means. The gospel frees us to live with the confidence, the certainty that the worst is behind us and the best is in front of us. We don't have to carry the weight of, I hope I do good enough. You know, the people we minister to in, in Africa, we walk into these places and, and they tell us, well, you know, here in, in, in Islam they teach, there's these weights and I have to put enough good weights to outweigh my bad weights. Well, when will you know? When I'm dead and standing before God and being judged. It's exhausting. How many people have you spoken with out in the world around us that say, oh, I just, I, I, I'm just going to be, I, I think I'm good enough. Are you? You really think you're good enough? But we have this future that's certain, that, that's not predicated on what I can do, on, on my own strength and my own wisdom. It, it's predicated, it's, it's dependent upon, it's, it's rooted in the, the work that's been on, done on my behalf. I don't have to try to convince God I'm worthy enough to be saved because in Christ he says I'm worthy. I don't have to convince God that I'm, I, I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad things because in Christ all I've got is good accounted to me. I have a future that's certain. And imagine now, when I'm not carrying the weight of I don't want to die and go to hell, and I need, to, I need to prove to God that I'm worthy of his salvation. I need, I need him to believe it, right? Like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get him to believe in me. When those two things aren't really, aren't really weighing me down, I can get up and come to church. My life will look very similar to what it would have before. But the motive underneath, the reasoning underneath, the, the, the desire underneath, everything about it will be different. Because I won't be going... To, to, to get God to believe in me, and I won't be going because I just want to stay out of hell. I will be going because I love the God who saved me. We are freed to worship when we quit trying to be everything God tells us we can't be and begin to trust in the gospel. We are saved from ourselves. We are saved from our sin. We are saved from the weight and and. and pressures of the law. We are saved unto life. We have a whole new future because of the gospel. And that 
leads into the final thing. We, because of the gospel, we gain new values. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to be dealing with this over the next two weeks, but, but their lives were radically transformed. They became a whole new people. They belonged to a whole new people. They were saved from their, they had a, were given a whole new future. And they, we are given, receive a whole new set of values. A whole new set of desires, a whole new set of purposes, a whole new reasoning for doing what we're doing. I was meeting with a guy the other day. It's not somebody in the church, but he is he, he is struggling with a pornography addiction. And um, so, so so you know, I, I meet with lots of people that aren't members of this church. It's one of my ways in seeking to reach and bring gospel influence in the world around us. And so I'm surrounded by a bunch of Christian people. In fact, if all I did was spend time with people who I know and love the best, I would only ever be around Christian people. That would be you. But I try to find ways to reach out beyond this. And so I'm meeting, there's this guy I'm meeting with. He's dealing with a pornography addiction. I'm proclaiming the gospel to him. I think that there's a gospel work being done. I'm seeing the fruit of it, I believe. Time will tell. But we come to this place where he's, where, where he's like, I've got to just deal with this. And I'm like, well, let's just let's figure this out. Let's understand this. Because if you put away the pornography addiction, but you do it out of a legalistic desire, the world will tell you that's a good thing. Oh, don't be addicted to pornography. People get that. People understand. Even the world understands it's a dangerous, addictive thing. Right? There's a movement that started that people understand the dangers of, the risks of it. Not everybody would agree. But much of the world, even the lost world, is understanding the dangers and the risks. This guy happens to be having marital struggles because he gets caught with his pornography addiction. So he understands there's an immediate value to not being addicted to the gospel anymore because he doesn't lose his wife. And I ask him, does it do any good for you to, to, to do this and say that you're doing this for your wife? Does it do any eternal good for you if you do it out of a legalistic desire just not to lose your wife? And he thinks about that for a second. It's like, well, I mean, I don't lose my wife. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, that's a good thing. But if you do this and then turn around and say, I didn't lose my wife, and it's all because of what I've done, are you really doing it for the glory of God? He thinks about, no, it's because I don't want to lose my wife. That's a noble thing, right? Wouldn't we as a church want that? I want my husband. I want my husband. I want our husbands. I don't have a husband. I want our husbands... I want our wives to love one another, serve one another, be the people that God's called them to be. Absolutely, I do. But if you are doing that just out of the fear of losing your husband or wife, you're doing it for selfish reasons. I want you to do it because of the gospel. I want you to do it but for the glory of God, the good of the person sitting across from you that you call your spouse, the good of the family that God's entrusted you with, and the advancement of the gospel to the kids that he might bless you with, the advancement of the gospel through you because your family is a microcosm of what God's doing around us in the world so that to his glory we can live these gospel truths in real practical ways. And he's struggling with that. He's thinking through that. And he's, he's like, wait a minute. And I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think the Pharisees would have been accepted in religious circles today? Absolutely they would have been. Their lives were immoral. They were clean. They were, they were above all. They were respected. These are good, godly people. What did Jesus have to say to them in Matthew 23? You are whitewashed tombs. I have no interest in leading a church that's just full of religious people. I have a great desire to lead a church that's motivated by the gospel to live religiously. To, to express their, their religion because of 
the gospel. And that's exactly what we begin to see happen. These people, so cut to their cut to the heart, they love Jesus, they, they express it, in, and how do they express it? New devotions, new, new reasons for doing what they're doing. They're devoting themselves now to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking bread, to, to fellowship and to prayer. And the apostles' teaching, they're, not, they're, they're showing up at the temple every day to, to hear these apostles take the truths of the Old Testament and expound on them and show them how Jesus Christ has fulfilled them. They're in one another's homes regularly because now they know they belong to one another. We're brothers and sisters. We're in the same life. They're praying, pleading with God, now as Father in a way that they had never prayed and pled before. Breaking bread with an understanding that every time that, that we eat of bread together as a community, we have the opportunity to remember that this community exists because of the sinless life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it became so real and so true that they began to value one another over the things that they own. Out of awe of God, out of out of desire to see Him glorified, they no longer hold what they own as more valuable than the people that that that, uh, that, that they're with. It's so shocking, so 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 stark, so distinct, and so different. Everyone in the world, everyone in the world, relates and interacts. On, a, on, a, on basically on a contract. I'll interact with you and I'll relate with you so long as you have something to offer me. That's all of the world. But as soon as that person has nothing left to offer, as soon as that person becomes difficult to deal with, and, and, the, and the language these days is toxic, as soon as that person becomes toxic for you, you're supposed to cut them off. Just to be quite honest, I don't know anybody that's not toxic for somebody else until the gospel has radically changed their hearts and made them be of value and benefit and blessing to the other person. How different is it when people start to show up because of what they have to offer instead of what they can get? That's exactly what we see happening in this passage. They have this whole new set of values, this whole new set of desires, this whole new awe and understanding of who God is and what God has done, and their lives are radically changed as a result of it. And it all starts with this new gospel identity. For the Christian, the gospel literally changes everything. We are who we are because of the gospel. So as a church, before we do anything else, we're always going to challenge one another. We're always going to challenge ourselves to be at this place that we root everything in the gospel. So early on, children's ministry, we had kids from day one. What are we going to do with kids? I started looking at curriculum. You know how much curriculum out there is, it, it teaches, uh, maybe even unintentionally, but, but it still teaches, if you do the right thing, Jesus will love you? You know how sick and twisted that is? You know how big a lie that is, how damning that is? You know how hard it is in a Christian culture to find Christian, gospel-centric, gospel-filled, gospel ideas that Jesus loves you based on his own nature, and if you believe in him, he provides you the blessing of life? Not because of what you deserve or what you earn or what you do, but because of who he is. Community group ministry, how hard it was to start those, not just being another time to get together and badmouth spouses and beat up on, on the people that aren't in the room. We, we shut them down three different times because they continue to evolve in something 
that wasn't healthy. They just weren't healthy. And then finally, gathering around the Word, we began to see men's group and a women's group begin to develop around the Word, become, began to be the, the, the ground in which we could develop these small group ministries that would center around gospel realities and gospel truths. Sunday mornings, coming and singing songs together. Every one of the songs that we pick. And, and here's the reality. We may sing some songs by some authors that you don't approve of. And, and I can talk to you more about this in, in private if you'd like. I'm not going to go into it a ton here. But there's not a song we haven't listened to that the message is gospel-centric, that's doctrinally accurate. And if you think there's a song we're singing that's not, you come and talk to us because we don't want that. We want the gospel known. We want the gospel believed. We want the gospel sung. We want the gospel to be in everything we do. Before we can live as a result of the gospel, right? Before we can do any of these things, though, we must first be transformed by it. We must be who we are because of the gospel. And so, brother and sister Christian, this is where we begin. Are you believing? Are you trusting in? Are you placing your faith in the gospel that God, the good news, that God, his work is to redeem and restore a people to himself through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're just doing religion, repent. If you're, if you're just putting on a show and practicing and just hoping you get something out of this church, you don't have a lot to offer, except the gospel, repent. If you're doing things not motivated to one another or towards one another, but selfishly, repent and believe the gospel. And in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about what it looks like to, to, to live.